Tonight on the Big Footy Cats podcast, we dissect what went wrong and what went really wrong in the 2014 finals series, discuss Chris Scott's coaching performance throughout the season, and share our thoughts on Mitch Clark and the other list management issues. Don't go anywhere, because all that and more is coming right up. Guys, welcome back to the Big Footy Cats podcast. I'm here, first of all, with SJ. How are you going? Very well. Uh, season's over. Looking forward to the cricket season. Um, but yeah, great to be back on the Big Footy Cats podcast. And once again, we're joined by the Jester. How are things? Yeah, good, mate. Very happy to be here after a long absence and uh, looking forward to breaking down what went wrong. My name, of course, is Gyson. Um, we we're hoping, hoping to be joined by Pure Ownage tonight, but um, he uh, hasn't turned up, so unfortunately, we'll have to wait until next time, hopefully, to get him on board. Um, we'll kick us off with... Oh, I hope he hasn't been delisted. <laughs> <laughs> Adding to the long list there. Um, we'll kick things off with a yeah, tip, a tip right. for the Kaji boys. Um, not necessarily the winner, a bit of a prediction for the best and fairest tomorrow night. Um, uh, yeah, I think my prediction is... Mitch Duncan to finish top three. I think he had a very consistent year. He probably improved his output 10% or so. Yep. Um, had a couple of quiet games, but on the whole, was very consistent. And I think that will sort of pay off under the Kaji, um, the Kaji voting system. Okay. Jester? Uh, I'll, I'll put my, my neck on the line and say Jared Rivers, top five. Oh, wow. Top five. Whoop. <laughs> 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 um. For me, I'm going to say Enright to finish outside the top 10. Um, I think he might just be mm. over, overlooked just a little bit this year. Um, so, so we'll kick it off with a, a look back at the finals. Um, a disappointing final series, of course, overall. Not what we're all hoping for, um, considering the home and away season we had, finishing top four and all that good stuff. Um, SJ, the scores. Yeah, that's right. So uh, qualifying final... The Cats were level at halftime against the Hawks, who then, went, of course, went on to win the win the Premiership. But um, final score: Hawthorne 15-14-104, Geelong 10-8-68. Um, so in the second half, Hawthorne steamrolled over the Cats, winning by six goals. Um, my, my first impressions of this game were that, uh, look, I didn't expect to win. However, being being in the game at halftime, I was pretty disappointed that the second half sort of uh, petered out the way that many of the games this year have for the Cats, yep. really weak second half. But also I thought that, and what really impressed me about Hawthorne uh, on this night, but also throughout their final series, and what disappointed me the most about the Cats was not in the skill or in taking your chances, which, look, are difficult things, but um, not so much attitudinal things. But it was really that Hawthorne, um, were far more aggressive at the man and at the ball than Geelong were. And, and I thought that was very obvious right from the word go. And I mean, I watched all three Hawthorne finals and apart from the last 10 minutes of their game against Port, they were very much putting every single uh, ounce of effort into smothers, tackles, bumps, and so on. And it's amazing how further down the, further down the field from that chain had plays out to be a score for your own team. And I think that this is probably a trend of drawing across the finals, but Hawthorne had, I think, uh, 66 more disposals than the Cats in this game. Yep. However, they also laid 22 more tackles. Yep. Now, one of my tweets got on Tweet the Coach about that, and Chris Scott sort of watered it down, saying it doesn't really say much about attitude. But surely it does say something about attitude. If, if a, a team with far more of the ball also lays, you know, a third as many, a third again as many tackles. Um, I just think Hawthorne were there to play and the Cats weren't quite switched on. I think that's a really good point. That's always one big key indicator in, well, an absolute smashing, but let alone in a final. 
is um, the team mm. with more of the ball. For them to get anywhere close to the team that they're smashing in the tackle count, let alone significantly beat them, it just shows so much more mm. hunger for the contest. What did you think, Justin? Um, well, I can't remember if it was the North game or the Hawthorne game, but uh, Champion Data tweeted a, a stat about tackle completions. Yep. And um, I can't remember it exactly off memory, but it, it suggested that we were running um, at a similar level in tackle attempts, but that uh, we weren't successfully completing the tackle, which I guess means the opposition was able to get a disposal off after the tackle was attempted. Yep. I thought that was really noticeable that, that, yeah, someone would commit to a tackle and then just wouldn't be able to make it stick and the opposition player would be able to get a handball off. And usually, against Hawthorne as well, usually a clean handball that found a target. Um, and, and then you're sort of a man down in the contest already and they're able to run it out. So, like, I agree, it, it partly was, I'm sure it partly was effort. And, and I think we'll talk later about sort of the defensive running and the lack of defensive running. But I also wonder if it's just that um, we're not, not as physically mature as we need to be to compete with these top sides. Yep. SJ, moving on to the North game, um, which I guess probably most of us would have expected to scrape through in, but um, unfortunately North were the hungriest side on the day. Yeah, well, I mean, they jumped as early, didn't they? I think they got out to a five-goal lead about 20 minutes in. and um, I, I was having flashbacks to the 2012 final against Fremantle where they did a very similar thing. It was probably a little bit more... Um, a little bit, a bit more of a, of a overwhelming uh, performance in that game against Fremantle. But it was just that thing where the first 20 minutes, 30 minutes of the game really cost us. And then we spent 30 or the rest of the game, three quarters, trying to get back in it. And even though we got very close to getting back in, it was almost like we never had that extra five minutes that we really could have pinched the game. So um, I'm not sure, again, why that happened. I mean... Lindsay Thomas kicked three in the first 10 minutes on James Kelly. Yep. Um, and a, a, again, well, I mean, we've spoken about it for years, but there, there again is our, uh, our weakness against fast running forward. It's, yeah, it's the small slash um, medium defender. But that's right. Yeah, and we've got an ex-midfielder who's, I don't know, 30, 31 years old. Um, certainly wasn't quick in his day, certainly isn't any quicker now, uh, playing on you know a, a sort of a quick similar type forward. Um, he kicks three in the first... Well, he kicks one in the first 18 seconds, so after that, the game's tied. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but, but, yeah, it's just these... I get, I get these runs of goals that the Cats have conceded all year, um, generally in the second half, but there was one in this game in the first 20 minutes, which almost took the thing out of the game from the, you know, from the get-go. Jester, what did you think of the North game? Oh, that Kelly getting opened up by Thomas reminded me of um, the qualifying final in 2007 when we we played uh, Paul Chapman off Glen Archer. And, you know, just Archer looked old and slow and he got aggro and just gave away a stack of freeze. Yeah. And it was just this really yeah. sort of calculated, um, ruthless move of, you know... Um, we know that this is the weak link and we're going to relentlessly target it. Um, and, and it worked. And I mean, yeah, it, I thought in both games, Kelly had horror first quarters and then tightened up a bit, but yeah, the damage was done. And the, and the fact he was allegedly injured in the warm up and they didn't replace him. It was just, yeah, came across as a pretty poor, um, selection decision. Yep, definitely. Um, Mm -hmm. so going on, on from that point, um, what did we miss most in the finals? Was it that lockdown defender that we've missed for so long? Uh, a ruckman would have helped. Sorry? I'll put my hand up for a ruckman. A ruckman? I'll put my hand up for a ruckman against uh, Todd Goldstein. That definitely would have helped. Um, Dawson Simpson going down for the second year in a row um, definitely cost us dearly. Um, uh, I, and also I would... against Hawthorne, just with David Hale... Um, David Hale pushed forward a few times against McIntosh, who was really struggling by that stage in the year. And Yeah, a, a number one ruck would have been great. <laughs> now, P.O., a late inclusion, has just decided to join us. How are you going, P.O. Ronich? Yeah, not bad. I did a Mitch Clark. I just went away for a while. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Oh. Oh. My Skype was oh. depressed. 
Well, like Mitch Clark, you've picked the perfect time to um, come back and help us. Um, what do what do you think we missed most during the final series, Pio? Oh, we oh look, we missed a few things. Uh, how how long am I allowed to talk about Ruckman for? A while. <laughs> we'll give oh, you ninety seconds. I've already done it. <laughs> yeah, that was kind of a rhetorical question. We look, we missed a fair bit, I think, you know, and I, I kind of I curse our luck because every year, as is you know the Geelong way for the last two or three years, we seem to have all our players fit when we don't need them, and then they suddenly get injured about <laughs> two weeks before finals when we do need them. Yeah. So I think I think like personnel and injuries were a massive issue for us in finals. Obviously, not just with our rucks, but um, with uh, Jono and a few others. Um, so I think that really really hurt us. But I think mainly just. Probably what you saw in the finals was like all year we were inconsistent within games and, you know, in two of our finals we probably played three quarters and you can't win on that. So I think that's pretty much mm. what caused it. What do you think, Chester? Um, uh, I'll disagree slightly. I think it's just it was sort of having, having midfield depth and having the guys out there be fit. You know, Motlop was just hobbling around and mm. looked a shadow of the player he was and... um. And even Hall and Smith, I reckon, was carrying something or just feeling the effects of a long season. So if those if those guys have been fit and playing at the kind of level they'd shown they could mm. in the middle of the season, and and if and if Christensen had been fit, then I reckon we would have been a lot more competitive. I think you're on the money there. Mm. Um, the the previous game against North Melbourne, I think, was our best up there with our best performance in the season. Um, and I'm, I'm fairly yeah. sure, looking back, it was that game that we really saw Motlop and Christensen um, and even Holden Smith, to an extent, really standing up and showing some of their best form, um, even though we didn't see them playing together for much of the year, um, but really working together well in that game. Um, and then to come up against Hawthorne and then further against North Melbourne, have those guys under injury clouds, it just really showed um, how much those important players not being up to scratch really hurt us. I believe that that game was the, I think the first time for the year that we'd had our, our best midfield on the park at once. Yeah, I remember and thinking before that game, um, this is our best 22 bar Menzel. Yeah, and, and, and we almost didn't quite get it back. I mean, some of them were there, but not fit for the rest of the year. So um, it was really one of those years where to be any sort of chance, we needed the very best 22 on the park. Yep. Um, and obviously we didn't quite even get close to that in the end. Um, but I think the other thing about the final series, to me, not not just the uh, the ruck, uh, the lack of aggression we've already discussed, but I guess when we lost control of the ball, the other team scored quite easily. Um, in both games, particularly the second half of the Hawthorne game and, and also what North Melbourne did to us, um, We'd spent a lot of energy getting the ball into a scoring position, and we probably did it as many times as the opposition. But because our forward line isn't very potent, and also there's not much pressure down there, um, the, the minute it came out, the coast to coast type goals looked very easy. Um, and I remember seeing the numbers, like in both games, the opposition had far more uncontested possessions than us. I've got the I've got the uh, North Melbourne one up here now. In that game, it was North Melbourne 230 for long 152. So the game like two to one, oh, sorry, three to two, um, which just shows a lot of the time they had the ball when they could choose what they wanted to do. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, you know, at the end of the day, yeah, we had a great last quarter. Um, Hawkins kicked four goals or whatever it was. We almost got back in it. But if we'd stolen that game, it would have been, been robbery, really. Yeah. I think for me that probably symptomised the midfield though because I, you know, I kind of in the first half I, I sat where the cheer squad was so I got a pretty good view of um, North's short kicking game and I, I wouldn't hang too much of it on the defence. I mean, I thought more broadly our defence was actually really, really good this year considering we basically don't have a, pretty much don't have a player under 30 in the defence. I thought mm. uh, we, we, we pretty much had close to the best defence in the league. But when you have that many guys getting uncontested kicks between the wing and forward 50, it's not your defenders that are actually causing that because they don't get far up, far enough up to push into that space to begin with. I think it was symptom of, mm. you know, we have a lot of inexperienced players in the midfield who probably 
there's some armors fit enough, like probably, um, you know, a good example of that is Hall and Smith, but some of the others don't know where to go and when to go, like a lot of our previous midfielders did. And so we're prone to other midfields can outrun us and they can run to smarter spots and get a lot of uncontested possession. I wouldn't ring it on the defence too much. I actually thought even in that game, I thought our defence probably kept us in it in the first half considering we barely touched the ball. Um, But it's just our, our midfield wasn't covering anywhere near well enough. Well, going on from that, why was our midfield group, um, particularly around stoppages, regularly subpar? Because um, we look at our season, we've got Salwood, Johnson, Stokes, Duncan, Caddy, Guthrie, and even Christensen at times, um, had fairly good years, or at least good patches. Um, but why was our midfield group not able to work as a good cohesive unit all season long? Esther? Um, I, I think probably you hit the nail on the head there where you talked about patches. Um, it's it's hard to find a player who sort of was there for the 22 weeks, uh, bringing his his A game at least, if not A plus game, but certainly just a, sort of a baseline good game every week. Um, uh, most of those were injured or suspended for some part, uh, either playing injured or or out for a number of months. Um, and I, I think that I mean we've only listed seven names there. Um, that seven midfielders, and they're, they're all pretty good. Um, but teams are batting down to sort of 10 and 12 midfielders, and even the Cats of a few years ago were doing the same. So um, not only do we probably not have the depth on the field, but apart from that second North game that you talked about earlier, probably we didn't actually get that whole set up and running at once at all. What do you think, Jessa? Yeah, no, I would totally agree. And I think... Um... Like I, th- I think one of the interesting dynamics is, and we'll probably talk about it a little bit later, is there was a, I think there was a general feeling we didn't get enough games into young players this year, which, which I think is true to an extent. But I think one thing they did do really well is transition the, like the chief midfield responsibilities to Caddy, Guthrie, uh, Hall and Smith, and and then Selwood on top of that. Um, but so, so you know they're all they're all still sort of learning the art, I guess. The other thing is, I, I just think Christensen makes such a difference um, to our ability mm. to win the ball in close, but also to get it cleanly to outside runners. Like he's so good, um, not just tunneling the ball out, but yeah, just just that extra step and and having the composure to find and hit a target. That yeah, I think he was a huge loss. And so yeah, we just we just never got um, our best midfield on the park, and and they're pretty young and inexperienced as it is. What do you think, Pierre? I look. I would agree with that. I think. I I, th- I do think. You know, and I, I won't harp on it, but I I think the lack of a um, probably not a dominant ruckman because a lot of teams get a, get away without a dominant one. Even Sydney don't have a dominant ruckman. They made a grand final, but um, the lack of a largely competitive ruckman has a lot to do with that because it messes your clearance setups because you can't plan for where the ball's going to go. And I think a lot of this year our midfield looked genuinely, from my view, genuinely disorganised. And I think there's a flow-on effect with that. But I but I, I agree um, with SJ in particular. I think really we had a lot of issues with injuries. And I, I thought probably the only games, probably the North game and part of the second Hawthorne game, I thought it, that was the only time I really felt that our midfield was genuinely competitive and it wasn't surprising that it was basically because Caddy was fit enough after missing most of the year. That that was the late that very late part of the year was when he started to increase his disposal count dramatically. We got Christensen back. We started to look like we could actually win the ball and use it out of a stoppage even though our stoppage numbers were still low. Um, I think without those guys there all year, we really lacked the ability to build what we needed because we don't have the depth under them. Like if you look, if you look at the guys that we just delisted off the list, and I know we'll probably talk about that later, but most of those guys were what you call average depth midfielders who wouldn't really get a lot of games anywhere. So we didn't have much below them. We needed those guys to be fit all year, and most of them weren't. Um, well, I think the other thing there is as well. Um, just touching on that topic is that if you look at those seven um, and, and compare them to maybe 
you know, the best ever at most clubs, although I'll say Hawthorne's probably a bit different and they're sort of more like us. But generally a premiership winning team does not have midfielders who are 31, 32, 22, 21 and 20. You know what I mean? Yeah. With, with obviously the captain there in the middle. Um, and, and so, you know, you expect they're not going to be bringing their A game every week. Um, some of them are either a bit slow or a bit weak or a bit of both. Um, and I think when they don't all play or, or, or actually let's look at when they do all play, like in that North Melbourne game, it means that they're winning enough of the ball that then the flow on effect is down to Murdoch, who probably had his best game of the year in that game, um, where he can all of a sudden get his hand on the footy because he's an outside player and he relies on players getting it to him. Whereas in the finals, Murdoch was lit, very close to being invisible because we just didn't get enough of that ball out to the outside players to do their thing because we were missing that engine room. Definitely. Um, we'll move on now to the coaching this season. Um, how do we rate the performance of the coaching staff as a whole, and in particular, uh, Chris Scott? Who wants to kick us off? Oh, yeah, I will. Yep. Um, oh, look, the coaches have to come under scrutiny because, you know, we've gone out in straight sets again, especially after, um, you know, weeks of really bizarre rhetoric about, um, you know, we think our best is good enough and how dare the media write us off, which was particular. I thought was particularly strange given that in, in his premiership year, Scott took the exact opposite approach and constantly downplayed our chances and said, oh, mm. no, no, you know, we're just... We're, we're all, we just want to compete and blah, blah, blah. Um, so I, I think that would almost be my biggest gripe is that it would be nice to get some some clear explanations because he is the absolute master at, you know, saying a great deal while actually saying nothing. And, and like his post-match press conference was after the North game where he said, oh, I don't want to... I don't want to explain it because I'm too emotional, which on one level is fair enough. But then if you're going to say that, it would be nice if you at a later point took the opportunity to actually explain what you think went wrong to fans. Yep. And, mm. I, and I guess his other, his other sort of defense against that has been, um, oh, I don't want to give too much away, like, you know, loose lips sink ships. But when the ship has sunk, I think you then, you yeah. know... It is actually fair enough to then say, okay, here are the things that went wrong and here are the things we need to improve on. Well, going I mean, back- that said, I don't think you should be sacked or anything like that. I, yeah. I, I think, yeah, that's a big overreaction. But yeah, it would just be nice to have some coherent explanations. Going back to your very first point there, I, I thought he was actually very frank in the way he was saying, we believe our best is good enough. Um, because I think SJ brought up the point earlier this was the season that we would have needed our absolute best 22, everything to just luck to just go our way um, and unfortunately that just didn't happen and you know going back to that North game again around that stage it looked like there might be a chance that might happen this year and those kind of comments were to an extent correct um, but it, it just so happened that um, whatever could go wrong did go wrong going into finals and we all know what happened from there um, yeah I, I mean I think you're right. Like I, th- I think your assessment is right. If we were gonna, if we were gonna win, everything had to go right. I guess my, I guess my problem with our best is good enough is that you know, Paul Ruse could say that about Melbourne, and he wouldn't technically be wrong because by mm. definition, if you're beating everyone above you, then it is your best. Mm. So yeah, like your best is always good enough because it is your best. Right. Yeah. Mm. So you know. Yeah. So I. Like I know, there's been a lot of cynicism from Biggie Boy and Partridge. They've loved, they've loved trotting out the mission accomplished and the our best is good enough line. <laughs> and I, I disagree that with them on on his actual coaching position, but I think they're right there that it, at a certain point that phrase has become a bit trite and and yeah, need, we need something a bit more. Um, well, I was about to say honest, but then again, you get the sense they do actually believe that in the club. So, anyway, I've said my bit. Yep. Pierre? Look, I I suppose I'd separate concepts. I, I am critical of the coaching staff for a number of things this year, but to be honest, I don't know if I would... I, I understand where TJ's coming from, and he, he has a point up to a point because I, I think... 
you know, it's kind of it misses the point if your best is good enough because, you know, any team, you know, North Melbourne could say, look, our best is going to be good enough and we're going to win a premiership, but really it's consistency and we didn't have consistency this year. So it kind of misses the point. But having said that, I wouldn't rag on the coaches too much. I, you know, I heard Chris Scott do a press conference, I think about two-thirds of the way through the year um, with Fox Footy where he was asked basically, you know, what's your approach to everyone saying, oh, Geelong's going to fail, Geelong's going to fail. And he said, look, Everyone said that since the month, the first month I got here, and I realised that eventually they're going to be right. So, I, I think the coach is fairly realistic about where we're at, and I think sometimes people, you know, Partridge in particular, they pick apart media statements too much. You know, like what what else is he going to say? Is he going to say, well, our best is never good enough? The coach is not going to say that. So. When he says that, in a lot of ways, I think he's really saying nothing. And I think to pick it apart too much, um, you know, places too much weight on it, I wouldn't. But having said that, I think probably, I think you know, I'd give our coaches maybe a 7 out of 10 this year. I don't realistically think that we could have actually won the premiership even if we had everyone fit. I don't think we've really got the demographics quite to do it. Um, so I think... For the coaches to actually put us in the top four again is a very good achievement. Um, but I thought there were a lot of things they could have done better. Was there anything in particular that really stood out to anybody? I'll go to SJ here. Um, the one for me was was Taylor going forward um, mm. in that final. I think it was the the qualifying final against Hawthorne just after mm. halftime. Mm. That, that, do we call that Plan B? Is that our Plan B these days? Well, that seems to be that seems to be the media Plan B. Which... Plan B, and there is no Plan C. Um, <laughs> no, look, that was that was a pretty bizarre move to me being there live. Now I'm not sure if something had happened at halftime, but considering Walker had just kicked a goal on the halftime siren, had taken three good clunks in the first half. Oh. Like he was, he wasn't he wasn't playing a match winning role, but he was. At that point, the best tall forward on the ground. Well, he, he um, looked to be having a, a bit of a breakout kind of performance. You know, he yeah, was, that's right. It was a real standout for us in that first half. And, and, and he, he actually played well in patches the week before against Brisbane in his first game, uh, possibly for the year, or at least for a long time. Um, and then for him to... I actually remember speaking to someone 20 minutes into the third quarter, and I, I said, is, that, is Walker still on the ground? It was and I realised he'd been moved to this sort of... Yeah, he was, but he was just playing this sort of ruck half back sort of third third man up type role, and I thought this is bizarre. And, and Taylor, look, Taylor's never kicked a goal against a good team, I don't think. Um, certainly not when the game's there that he won. Um, and you know that probably rolled into the fact that Walker was in the ruck, and then Blitzars was playing on a wing, and then Brad Hill was getting touches against Blitzars, and this sort of domino effect um, was just quite quite bizarre. Um, Look, obviously, they they must have felt like, even though the scores were level at half-time, something needed to change. And, well, and maybe they were right. Maybe we would have lost anyway. But, I mean, I, I definitely would have kept... Um, I would have kept Josh Walker uh, at that sort of centre-half-forward role where he was presenting up and flying for marks. And if he wasn't taking them, creating a contest so that Hawthorne's uh, well-renowned intercept marking game couldn't happen, um, and probably helping Hawkins to be more isolated. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 well, at the, at the time, I thought it was, um, it was sort of they couldn't get Taylor, um, isolate Taylor floating off to, to get his own intercept mark game going, so they threw him forward. But, you know, that's, that's still a failure of coaching, you know. He's more, he's more damaging um, down back. As, as an all-Australian centre-half back who can rebound really effectively than he's ever going to be up forward. Mm. And does this also play into the fact that we've got too many tall defenders and that um, if we don't have a match-up for one, one goes forward. However, they're all defenders and we're, the, the, the root problem is the fact that we actually need probably a little bit more flexibility in the back line rather than loading it up with talls. Yeah. Well, I saw it, I think you touched on it a little bit just before, I saw it quite simply as a roll of the dice, like... That first half, sure, the scores were just about level at halftime, or they were level, I can't quite remember. Um, but it looked like Hawthorne were just on top in that game. And it was just something dramatic needed to change. And Taylor, you know, he's been taking great, strong contested marks all year. 
Um, I saw it as a very brave move, high risk, high reward, and it turned out the risk was the the side that um, that came back to bite us, I guess. Mm. Uh, the okay. only other thing I would say in relation to that, and I think you know, I I I call this to some people I was talking to at half time because I noticed that even for a bloke who's like a tortoise, Macintosh couldn't get near anything. Um, <laughs> we we now know that they played him injured, and the coach and we didn't know that at the time, but the coaches knew that at half time, and yeah. they knew they knew pretty much that they'd made the wrong decision to take him in, but they couldn't. With the risk, they couldn't sub him at half time. You can't sub him that early. They had to wait till three quarter time, and I think that would have thrown the tools out because then Walker Walker is the best tool in the side for covering ground. So all of a sudden he has to cover that ground because McIntosh still kind of has to float on the bench but can't cover anything until we can sub him, and then everything else goes out of sync. So I, you know, I if I would be more critical of them playing Taylor forward if I see them doing it next year. I think I think a lot of it in the Hawthorne game had to do with what happened on the night, yeah. um, and that that's another issue I'd like to touch on later in regards to you know not having any rucks and picking the wrong blokes. I think they would have had a coaching discussion at halftime and gone, oh crap, we have to throw the jigsaw around because now our tool's gone, um, mm. and that might have had a lot to do with it. Well, we'll move on now to um, a bit of list management discussion, and Mitch Clark obviously is the big one. Um, we know he can play a bit of ruck himself, um, but the talk is that he'll be brought in to play forward. Um, we'll, we'll touch on that in a sec. But first of all, what are our thoughts on adding Mitch Clark to the likes of Menzel, Simpson, McIntosh, Vardy and Cowan? Um, uh, an absolute arsenal of injury-prone players there. Um, well, I mean, it's, it's just hard from our outside perspective because we haven't got an actual, you know, we haven't got the medical diagnosis. And... Like for all we know, there's a surgeon sitting somewhere in Melbourne telling the club he's fine. He'll be, you know, it shouldn't be a reoccurring problem. Um, whereas, you know, you look at someone like Menzel, and clearly it is a reoccurring problem. And and so he could be a totally different kettle of fish, and actually, you know, is really injury prone. So, yeah, it's a risk. It, but um, I I guess given the cost and and the fact that it sounds like they're not going to pay him much, I'm I'm leaning in favour. What do you think, Pierre? Look, I I think initially when I first taught, heard it, I was a bit against it. And But, you know, I was thinking more about this today and um, it did occur to me because, you know, we haven't seen Clark play for two years. So I kind of, I've forgotten him a bit and I remember he was a good player, but I, I still can't forget. It did, I did actually, someone pointed out to me today when you look at where, where and when he was drafted as a top 10 pick, I think it was 2005. He's actually only a year older than Hawkins and Selwood. And that made me think twice because I thought, you know, Hawkins next year will get a hugely long-term deal. Like we'll give him four or five years or something like that. And we expect him to be here for a long time. We expect Selwood to be here for a long time. Um, And I'm not saying Clark will play that long, but also that's that's the age group we, we don't have players in. And so, you know, that's why you're starting to see kind of Selwood and Hawkins, in my opinion, kind of have to carry the team. So... It made me think, and I thought, well, look, you know, I have to give the coaching staff and probably more the list management staff some credit. They've they've obviously they pulled Clark out from Collingwood's under Collingwood's nose, which is a pretty pretty good effort and says good things. Yeah. But they've spent a lot of time targeting two players from Melbourne who are both aged twenty six, and we don't have any twenty six year olds who are decent. So I I still am pretty nervous about how he's going to turn out. The injuries worry me. But the strategy, I can see the merit in it. SJ, do you have anything to add to that? And what do you think of his potential impact on our forward line slash rock division? Um, uh, I'm a very conservative person, uh, <laughs> so I don't like taking risks at the best of times. I, I will say that if you're going to take a risk, this isn't a bad one to take. However, given the already precarious position on our list um, in regards to the players you, you mentioned. Say we had none of those six or five or six in replaying players on the list and we were back in 2007, maybe. I, I would go for Mitch Clark, definitely. Um, it, it, but it's sort of the state of the list that, that gets me and there's only so many Ruckman you can have on your list or, or even Tall's. Yeah. Um, and I just worry that we're going to be in the same situation next year 
Macintosh will break down, Clark will break down, and it's just like, it's so frustrating to me when that happens. Now, in saying that, Clark, Clark has a lot of upside, more upside than Macintosh when we got him, more upside than Rivers when we got him, um, and, and so because of that, you know, and because of the fact that we're, we're sort of got a gaping hole at the moment at centre-half forward slash ruck, and, and this guy plays both of those positions. Um, I can see what they're trying to do. Uh, the guy kicks... I've actually watched him play a lot in the past couple of years at, at Melbourne, and he's a very good player. Um, he kicked 29 goals in 11 games for Melbourne in, in 2012 when, when they were like one of the weakest teams I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, he's, a, he's a very aggressive, athletic, tall man um, who can do the lot. Um, he's good at ground level. Uh, however, just looking at his figures, he's played 97 games in eight years. So that's like 12 a year. Now that says something. And I'm just worried that we're going to end up with another Hamish McIntosh. Well, that's the that's the real worry there, isn't it? Because obviously, the, the well, the obvious thing is that he's coming in to play forward. Um, but then if we're in the same situation with the Ruck next year, um, you know, you've got... You know, McIntosh could break down again. Simpson could break down again. Um, this is probably another guy that's just going to end up a tall guy that's just going to end up getting thrown in the ruck there, um, and we'll just be adding sort of another precariously injured injured player um, to to be relied upon for that position. Um, when when really, if we were to go after a tall, as you said, it's frustrating to not just have that durable. Um, I want to say Trent West type player <laughs> that you can. Uh. <laughs> That you can just count on to consistently. I feel like we're back in 2013. (laughs) We did a podcast on that. (laughs) Um, But having said that, if if he comes in, he plays forward. As you said, the upside greatly outweighs the risk here because he has the potential to kick 50, 60 goals um, alongside Tom Hawkins. And this could be a very, very scary forward line if we pull this off. And the other thing too, we bemoaned, I think, all year as supporters. We said, and I think we could see that a number of problems with our forward line, but we all bemoaned we had no link between the midfield and Hawkins. We lacked a forward who could really quickly lead up, get the ball, and then cover ground the other way. And we were always breaking down across half forward. And Clark at his best, and, you know, SJ touched on that, he is if you ever wanted a bloke 200 centimetres who could do that, he's your guy. Like, yep. because, yes, he can take pack marks. He can do a similar stuff in a way that Hawkins does. But he also, when he was playing well at Brisbane, he covered a hell of a lot of ground. And he was a very, very, very good link player because I haven't seen many guys of that size who can actually... Um, you know, pressure that well when they don't have the ball. So I can kind of see what they're trying to do because we actually do lack that sort of player in our front half. Um, but, you know, you, I, I, it's probably the hardest thing for me is I don't have full faith in our medical staff given, <laughs> given some of the other players we have. But, yeah, I, but I can yeah, see that's... what they're trying to do. He is actually, he's not a square peg in a round hole when you look at what we need and what we don't have. Um, and that's an interesting point you've brought up that they've um, that they're on the back of all these sort of um, injured players and also um, bringing in Mitch Clark. They're simultaneously uh, revamping the high performance department. So um, I suspect that um, from Scotty's reactions um, to Steve Johnson's performance in the finals, I suspect there was a you know by the end of the season there was a bit of a lack of faith um, by the coaches in in the prognosis of the medical staff or um, or something similar because he yeah he seemed genuinely blindsided by Johnson pulling up lane so yeah hopefully hopefully they've got the people in place to and the structure in place to be able to adequately assess whether or not he's fit and and ready to go and just quickly before we move on from Clark where does this leave um, Josh Walker uh, Nathan Vardy and Mitch Brown I think Brown oh, you. Sorry, SJ. <laughs> oh no, I was I was going to say you've you've got the um you've got the good oil on this PO. So <laughs> no, no, it's just I know SJ and I have talked about this for many years, and we went to the VFL together a few times, 
back when Mitch Brown, we really had hopes for him, and I know how much SJ loves Mitch Brown, so I'm, I, I don't, I don't love him. I just think he he's got talent. I know, but you know, we always used to talk about this guy has real ability, and he's not a plotter like Ryan Gamble, and and it's actually true. No. He does he does have real ability, but I think yeah, I think you know, if you kind of wanted an understanding that Brown and Geelong are probably our square peg in round hole, it's probably the fact that they're going to pluck someone like Clark and try to pick for him. So Brown, yeah, no, I think gone. Um, Walker, Walker is different. I think. The one of the most interesting things I thought about the end of the season, I've you know been trying to look for positives, but he actually went from looking like probably the worst ruckman I have ever seen to something probably half resembling Trent West, like not <laughs> quite there, but you know getting like seriously, people laugh, but he was actually vaguely competitive. So yeah, his, yeah ability, he was. his ability to do other roles like that, and he had to do that when we lost Macintosh. That'll he'll get enough games somewhere, and yeah. that's the problem that Brown has. Brown can't kind of present that sort of thing to the coaching staff. So, um, you know, I mean, hopefully he's still on our list next year, Walker. But I think he'll still get enough games. And I think unless we <laughs> trade, the only reason Walker wouldn't get a lot of games is if we trade in um, a more durable ruckman, which we may still do. Because if we don't, if you look at you know Macintosh Simpson might retire. Clark, realistically, are all those guys going to play enough games that Walker's not going to need to play in the rut? No. So I think I think he'll play anyway. Yep. The really interesting one for me is Nathan yep. Vardy because he's one that I've looked at as the certainty to come in and play centre-half forward. Um, and then I was really surprised and then later excited to hear about the Mitch Clark situation. But where does that leave Nathan Vardy, who was well, seemingly in most people's minds, I think, uh, from my general perception of things, the, the next best thing at centre-half forward? Well, I think you play him at second ruck so that Mark Blitzarves can uh, maximise his running patterns and truly show us what he's made out of. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, I, 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 think, I think when you've got a player with coming off an ACL, you can't have high expectations in his first year back, that's for sure, particularly when they're, when they're a big guy. Okay. So yeah, whatever, yeah. whatever we get out of him in 2015, we're happy with. Uh, hopefully he comes on, but I mean, he's not going to be a star in 2015. Yep. Um, anyway, moving on to some other players. Well, we've already touched on Mitch Brown, um, but the other three really are, um, Taylor Hunt, Josh Cowan and Travis Varco. Um, do we see them staying with the club? Um, and if they do, what is their role going forward? Um, PO, I'll go to you. Well... You know, um, I suppose I'll go first to last. Taylor Hunt very much is going, um, which you know I'm a fan. I'm a fan of his. I was always a fan of his, and I still feel we actually lack a good defensive midfielder. And I actually thought um, he showed real aptitude for it. But anyway, I think I think if you I listened to Barm's comments yesterday, and I think you know, kind of it was it was it was very polite Geelongish. Yeah, we're not gonna like delist you, but you can do what you like. Like when he was asked about Taylor, that was pretty much his equivalent response. And so I think, you know, you look at it from the club side, you look at it from Hunt's side. He wants more opportunities, and he's a decent player. He'll find a club. He'll definitely be on a list next year. Um, I don't think it'll be ours. Um, they haven't. I don't know. I mean, TJ can probably update me. I've been a bit out of the news, but it seems from what I've heard that Cowan is going to stay, which I find pretty surprising, yep. particularly given if we're going to bring in Clark and we're still going to hang on to McIntosh because he's, he's got another year on his contract. Um, I would put Cowan on the rookie list if it was me, but anyway, that's not my decision. Um so I think I think it sounds like he'll still be with us, um, and obviously you know considering that they got rid of Stringer and Schroeder, that probably indicates you know basically only one out of Cowan and those two was going to survive. So obviously it seems like they've gone for Cowan. I think. Yeah. And Travis. Uh, yeah, he's, he's, oh, sorry. He's go con- on. Sorry, Cowan's had his contract extended. So oh, he has had his oh, contract extended. Yes. I, yep. I just yep. hadn't heard. I wasn't sure. I, I'd read a lot that, you know, that that seemed to be what the club wanted to do. I just hadn't heard of that. Look, I think with Varco, I, I still expect him to be here next year. But I think um, I think 
there could be some movement in trade week. I think um, the club is not going to be stupid, particularly if, if, you know, I mean, if they're looking at free agents again, and let's be honest, you know, you'd have to be a pretty dumb club if you weren't trying to get Dangerfield. You'd be pretty stupid, right? Yeah. So yeah. If, if you don't, therefore, if you were to pull off a good free agent and Varco goes, you get no compensation anyway. And I think that's that's something that a lot of people have ignored in saying, oh, well, you know, why in the heck would you trade Varco, et cetera, et cetera. You, you have to look at it pragmatically. You have to look at free agency. So um, I expect him to be here next year because I I just don't – I don't really – I haven't heard any news to indicate otherwise, but I certainly think he's tradable if someone offers something decent. Uh, TJ, do you have anything to add there? Well, uh, someone posted something on the forum today that I have no idea of its legitimacy that suggested that Varco and Hunt had turned down offers to be um, the piece that moved the other way in the Mitch Clark trade. Right. So, because, um, and I think there's a suggestion that they might want to move Varco for a bit of salary cap relief. Um, but, yeah, I think, um, I think, yeah, it's a shame. It's a shame Hunt will leave. Uh, tidy player in the sort of age bracket we need, but for whatever reason, they they clearly don't rate him. Or you know, if he if he wasn't getting an opportunity at the end of last year, then then he's just not going to get an opportunity. Um, and I, I guess the thing about Varco is, I thought, you know, he's a divisive player. I thought he played much better in finals, but I think SJ, you you sort of showed in the middle of the year that or, or questioned, you know, is he going to get any better? Like. He's, he should be in his prime and he's only getting um, sort of a, a comparative handful of disposals. Do we want to, you know, do we want to hold on to him? And I thought in finals, like he was playing well, but it, but it was because he was, he was creating contests and he was almost playing this really scrappy role. And, and he's not mm. in the team for that. He's in the team because he's supposed to be this sort of Rolls-Royce who, who can run yeah. at, at pace the length of the ground and deliver the ball really accurately. And... I yeah. mean, he's covered in he's covered in strapping these days. So maybe it's just the his body's not what it was. But yeah, you do wonder if if the best we can get out of him is this sort of scrappy defender. Then then is he worth keeping? Yeah. Um, I guess I'll put Varco and and I think Varco and Taylor Hunt have got similar stories for me um, because I think both of them. Uh, I mean. Varco was sort of missed all 2012, but at the start of 2013, both Taylor Hunt and Varco were actually in really good form, um, and both had serious injuries where they missed quite a bit of footy, came back straight away, looked like a fish out of water, n- never got dropped, I don't think, um, and sort of uh, sp- spotted their way into the end of the season, and um, you know, Varco played in the finals and was Look, Varco, I think, was very poor last year and Taylor Hunt eventually got dropped, um, never to be seen again. Now, I, I don't know if they were given the best chance to return. They seem to lose a lot of confidence after those injuries. Um, clearly, Varco is a huge confidence player. Uh, Taylor Hunt sort of never never got back to what he's good at. And I was just wondering, even this year, like, with Taylor Hunt, I mean, we were crying out, for me, I think we need young, small to medium-sized defenders. Taylor Hunt was playing the Guthrie role a few years ago. He started as a back pocket. He then moved into the midfield. He never got a go down back. Um, Jeb Buse came in for a few games. But we ended up going back to, you know, your Kelly, Enright, old combo. So he's out of favour, but I'm just not sure if we ever actually brought these guys back in through the right channels rather than rushing them back in. I think Taylor Hunt had a, a broken collarbone. And he was back in a couple of weeks, you know, first week back after sort of being ticked, right, you're okay. They seem to sort of struggle ever since then. And Barco's the same. Um, you look at his numbers and it actually makes me sad. I know he's playing a different role now. I know he's playing in the back line. But, um, you know, a lot of players can be attacking out of the back line. Um, and this is a guy that in 2009-10-11 had 22, 14 and 25 bounces across those seasons. The last two seasons, he's had six and five. Yeah. Like, he just isn't... There's no, there's no attacking flair to his game. He's not getting involved in, in almost any scoring chains. Um, he's sort of playing a lockdown defender. And clearly, his two best 
uh, skills are in sort of carrying the ball and delivery. And for whatever reason now, it just seems to be it's just um, perished. It's just we don't see it at all. Um, so maybe it's time to move them on. I'm, I'm very reluctant to move players on, but I, I sort of felt like they haven't been handled in the best way. And um, maybe it's just past that point of no return now. Guys, do we have any closing thoughts on that? Yeah, just look, just briefly, I um, and I, I agree with a lot of what SJ says. Although I probably would say I actually thought Varka was pretty good in the two finals. And one thing that I've previously been very critical about him for was his lack of willingness to actually bump players and execute tackles. And that was actually one thing he did really well at the back end of this year. He seems to have lost his confidence to actually attack the other way. But I actually felt for the first time he wasn't actually a liability in terms of defending an opponent and defending space, which I think is a really good achievement. So I think he played really well. But what I was thinking when TJ was talking was saying, you know, he made a good point to say, look, Varko is a useful player, but is he good enough at his age, because he's in his prime age at 26, that you would break the bank for? And I think the answer is no. Like, you know, if a club wanted your Tom Hawkins or guys like that, you break the bank to keep them. I don't actually think the club is desperate to get rid of Varko, but if someone else offered him good money, you wouldn't on the basis of what he's delivering now, which is pretty mid-range, you wouldn't be desperate to pay more money in your salary cap and keep him because really you you have young players in the third or fourth year who can probably give you what Varco is giving you. And yeah. so pragmatically, that's how I would look at it. I still probably think it's more likely than not that he's here next year, but I think clearly the club is open to, hey, look, if someone wants to give us a good offer, yeah, we'll do that. Well, on that... I think I'm going to have to um, call time on it, guys. Um, thanks very much for joining us tonight. It's been good. A little bit rusty. Thanks for having us, mate. A little bit rusty no, on the uh, on the first one back, but um, I'm sure we'll improve there. And um, we'll probably go around again in a couple of weeks, I guess. We will. Yeah, uh, I think we have to have a, uh, a national draft preview. We do. We uh, do. Because yeah, the, the last one. If we have any one... picks by then. <laughs> <laughs> if we Al- didn't trade them all for Mitch Clark. <laughs> Um, well, SJ, PO, TJ, thanks very much. My name's Gyson, and um, we'll see you next time. No worries. See ya.